So this is a question about just uh, that I've had on my mind a little bit of doing community with unbelievers and then maybe knowing that there's another believer in the group um, and wanting to make that unbelievable, like, you know, it's been multiple years walking with some of these unbelievers, but having a desire of, you know, making that a, um, like a more intentional time with these folks. How do, how do you make the transition from just doing the do to maybe stepping into a little bit more intentionality of, I want to see these folks come to know Jesus? And how does that process sometimes play out, maybe? I mean, usually what, what we see is somebody says something to this effect, I didn't even realize that I was a Christian until I found myself defending Jesus to my friends. And then I realized, wait a second, I actually believe this stuff now. And so I think it's less of like a line and more of people belong before they believe. And at some point along the way, you know, people move at the Holy Spirit's pace in their journey, light bulbs go off. Um, they go, I didn't believe before, but I do now. And we'll say, all right, well, let's mark it. And then we'll baptize them, which I think that's where baptism's really helpful to kind of, you know, create a moment where you say, this is where we're going to celebrate that you, I, you now identify with Jesus. You didn't before. Is there a place for what we know as the traditional church in home church? And the reason I'm asking that is because I feel like sometimes there's not a lot of structure in what we do. And I think our time would be better served with a little bit of structure, but not that much structure. You know what I'm saying? Like there's a balance to me walking a fine line. Um, I don't want to go back to the old way, but I don't know. Just your thoughts on that. Yeah, again, I think sometimes, you know, when you hear conversations like this, you may assume that, uh, Mike or Aaron is saying we need to abandon the traditional church and all of its methodologies, all of it comprehensively. I don't hear them saying that. And sometimes I think we need to clarify that. I think that the, the missional movement needs a renewal too. I really do. Um, a lot of it's done from my perspective by a lot of guys and ladies who are all about action and doing. So what I love about Korea, what I love about Creo is that we have a beautiful marriage of the contemplative of spiritual formation of prayer and missionary activity. You need both. And I think the traditional church, we shouldn't give up on it even if we're not actively partnering with it. I have in my own purview and maybe this will be helpful for you, brother. I have a virtual church that I, I operate called Anamkara Abbey. I'm working with an Anglican missionary society to reach pagan and postmodern people. And I'm also serving as the uh, interim at a Lutheran church, Missouri Synod. I think there's room for all different ways of doing and being the church as long as 
We're keeping the gospel the main thing, and we're moving out into the harvest field, making disciples, whether that's in home church, house church, micro church, coffee house church, bar church, Anglican church, all of it. God loves all of it, and at the end of the day, he's still using all of it. We just want to be a catalyzing agent in the midst of it to call people not into something new. So hear me clearly, friends. The stuff that Mike's talking about, this is not new. This is going back to the beginning. This is going back to the great missionary waves that have existed throughout history. And we talked a little bit about Celtic spirituality this morning. I don't know if, you, if there's anybody who knows church history here, but the early church apostatized after he got married to the Roman power structure. And what God did was he sent Patrick to Ireland and a whole separate spirituality erupted there, which the Irish then sent missionaries back to Europe, which needed to be re-Christianized. And a lot of people don't realize that. So this is the kind of stuff that God does. He raises up people like us to speak a new word about an old pattern that Jesus established to us. So yes, there is hope for the traditional church. Can some of this stuff work in the traditional church? I have micro churches operating out of my traditional Lutheran church structure right now. It doesn't have to be an either or. It can be a both and. It's more difficult, I'll tell you that, but it's doable. I hope that encourages you. Um, yeah, I think, so when he talked about movement, I think it's, it's really fascinating to think about the church going from whatever was in the upper room to 20,000 people in 100 AD, and then over 20 million people in 300 AD, and then plateau. So really fascinating. So as soon as it sort of became institutionalized, it did flatline church's movement. Um, I think, let me, you have a marker that I can use? I think that, you know, people's imagination... starts with um, the church. You know, so they go, if you mention anything, faith, God, Jesus, religions, you know, any of that, people's minds automatically goes to church. Well, I don't go to church, or sometimes I go to this church, or I come from this church background. So their starting point in their imagination is church, right? And in church is where we go, to learn about Jesus. And then, you know, like the super dedicated, like Navy SEALs of Christianity, like go on mission. <laughs> yep. So you go church, Jesus, mission. I think that's most people's imagination. But really, I think that what you see in scripture is Jesus. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God, and the word was God, and the word became flesh 
and dwelled among us. And as the Father sent me, I send you. So you start with Jesus. Jesus is the starting point, not the church. Jesus is the starting point. And then Jesus was a missionary. And so it's not that we even plant churches or start churches. It's that you start with Jesus, and then Jesus sends people on mission. And then mission results in, you know, all kinds of churches. Okay? So I think a missionary overseas would say, you know, they're, they're thinking because they're thinking like a missionary. In America, even missional people don't think like missionaries oftentimes. Okay? So you have to kind of pay attention. I sat at our table here over lunch. You know, we were Zooming with a missionary overseas with a bunch of people in my living room. All the people in my living room had come to faith through youth sports. number of new believers were hanging around um, on this Zoom window talking to someone overseas. And, we, and one of the guys in our group said, um, so how many people have you reached for Jesus? And the guy goes, dude, I'm just trying to learn the language. Right? And I think for many of us, we're focused on reaching people, starting things, multiplying things, when the, the starting point as a missionary is to understand your mission field. Who are these people? What are their struggles? What are their idols? Where do they hang out? Right? What's sacred to them? What are they dealing with? Where's the pain? So I think you start with Jesus, who sends us on mission. And like Spurgeon said, every Christian's a missionary or an imposter. We're all missionaries. And then mission leads to, you know, a movement. Because Jesus talked about the church not as an institution, but as a movement. And so the church is not like, you know, First Baptist Church on the Hill. That's not, that's not what you see in the, in the New Testament. What you actually see is something more like where two or three are gathered in my name, the church in Chloe's house, the church in Ephesus, the church in Asia, um, all believers, right? So it's like this. The church is a, is a movement. It's as small, it's as small as two or three, and it's as large as every believer that calls on the name of Jesus all over the planet. Okay, so I think we have a, a reductionist vision of church when we think of church as a place that you can attend on a Sunday morning from 10 to 11. I think we have to think about the church not as an institution, but as a movement, right? And so it's kind of flipping the, the paradigm. So I'd say this, is there a place for like a Sunday morning, you know, type of thing, or maybe something more structured? It depends on your mission field. Does that make sense? It, it depends on your mission field. For my neighbors, no. For some of the people Foy's hanging with, yes. And so you have to do the work of, of, of a missionary to figure out your missionary context and ask the question that a missionary needs to ask, which is what does church look like for these people? 
what does church look like in this neighborhood, in this city, in this microbrewery, in this coffee shop, in this workplace? What, what does it look like for us to be the people of God in this place and to see lives transformed and this place become an outpost of the kingdom of God? I think that's the, the type of question that we need to ask. And then we got to help people understand because there's so much baggage around, around the word church that what we just experienced was being the people of God. And so I can't tell you how many times we've been on my back patio and someone would bring someone like from recovery and we're hanging out on my back patio and this person has zero faith background, but they have an idea because of our culture of what the church is. And the idea in their head is Sunday morning, right? And so they're on my back patio, and on my back patio, somebody goes, what are the needs that people are dealing with? And someone goes, man, I just need a mattress. And someone else in the group goes, I have a mattress in storage. And someone else goes, I have a truck. And someone else says, Tuesday's free for me. And then they go, I'll help you on Tuesday and we'll deliver the mattress to so-and-so. Awesome. Like, wh what, are, what are the rest of you dealing with? Well, I'm just dealing with some guilt. And then people are like, can we pray for you? And they're praying for each other. And then we're eating together. And then somebody asks a question and they're talking about what's going on in their life. And we end up talking about two or three of the stories that Jesus told in light of what they're dealing with, Right. And so at the end of the evening, this person in recovery looks at me and goes, it's been really fun hanging out and having dinner with you guys. When do you have church? And I go, we just did. We broke bread together. People were confessing their sins. We were meeting each other's needs. We prayed over each other. You know, there was generosity, you know, all of that stuff was going on. We talked about the stories that Jesus told. Like, all that happened. This is what it means to be the people of God that are worshiping Jesus in community around this table on this patio. This is church. It's like, oh, that's cool. Right? But she just needed to understand and have her imagination, you know, ha have an imagination for it, have a grid for it. Does that make sense? You got one. Yep. Yeah, so you all hear that? Um, that's good. I... You know, honestly, I think that we should begin with the end in mind. I think from day one, you're, you're saying eventually you're not going to be here or I'm not going to be here. You know, so there's a, a church that started with an end date, meaning they put into their founding documents, in 20 years this church plant will dissolve right? Like Mission Impossible. <laughs> but the idea being, every, if the, is the church a living organism? Yes. yes. How many churches are still around from the first century? 
How many, how many original, you know, expressions of church are still going? Okay, so what you have is the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Why? Because it's a living organism, but living organisms die. But our legacy is not in survival, it's in reproduction. So the best way to preserve tradition is not to wear your father's old hat, it's to have children, right? And so your goal is we want to birth new communities that birth new communities that birth new communities and see new things start. So I like to say when you start, when you start something, you think about like, hey, we're, why don't we team up together in this coffee shop, right? And think about what it looks like for us to be the people of God in this place and create a space for people. And let's commit to doing that together for the next three years. And we're going to pray for these people. We're going to be in this place regularly. We're going to watch God work in this space and amongst these people. And at the end of three years, I might go or you might go or we might launch other people out. But the goal is not that we would keep these 15 people together forever, but that we would raise people up to release them or that we would then go off and see new things start and form and then multiply because the goal is not survival, it's multiplication, right? Don't fear death, fear not multiplying, right? Because it's a different paradigm. The goal is that we would expand, you know, out. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts. If Jesus said, it's going to be better if I go, right? Why is that? If I don't go, you're just going to like hang on to me and you're never going to go, right? But I'm going to go, I'm going to send the Spirit and the Spirit is going to empower you and you're going to be my witnesses and, and it's going to be a movement. And I think we, if, if people hang on to us too long or stay in our groups too long, we actually stunt their growth. Because there are things that they need to learn that they're not going to learn unless they pioneer new territory, unless they take on new mission, unless they engage new neighborhoods. There are certain things that, are, that need to happen in their spiritual development as they're out there on the front lines of the mission of Jesus. That's part of their development. And I think if we keep them under us, we end up with these you know, 50-year-old adults that are still eating meals that we're preparing, right? They've been in our home up to the age of 50. They never got a job, right? They never launched out. They never got their own place. They just continue to sit under us. And I think really the church is a lot of that. I mean, if I, if I go to many churches like I do now and speak to rooms of 500, 600 people and say, how many of you have made a disciple? And it's like crickets, and I go, how, how many of you have been here for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, and you've never made a disciple? How many of you know what your gifts are? Very few people know. I'm sitting there like, wait a second. You've been sitting here basically being breastfed for 30 years. But you've never learned to make your own meals and then make meals for other people and develop others, and multiply, and grow into maturity, you're just sitting here immaturely eating what somebody else has prepared for you. And I, I just think it's irresponsible, honestly. 
So I, I think the key is right from the get-go, you're telling people, like, we're not going to be together forever. That's a good thing because as you start new things, my closest friends are people that have left our community to form something else, and now we get together and we talk about how's it going, what's God doing? And there's this shared, like, like we're both in the battle together. We're crying. Like, I'd, I had to show up at this guy's house and dump pills down his toilet because he was going to take them again, and he's got this issue, and I was there for him. I helped his marriage, and yeah, well, I'm dealing with this, and this is what we had happen with the neighbor, and the neighbor we just discovered has multiple identities, and so he goes by Glenn, but he also goes by at least two other personalities, and the one personality's creepy, and what do I do about that? And you're sitting there processing dumping pills and multiple personalities, and as you're processing this stuff, you're like, we get what we're going through. There's like a shared camaraderie. It's not that the relationship is weakened because we don't see each other as often. It's actually deepened and strengthened the same way it is with this guy and this guy every time we see each other, even though it's spread out. We understand like the, it's a shared journey. It's a shared adventure that we're on. And I think in many ways, we'd, we'd limit the, the growth and potential of the people around us if we don't get them up and get them out. You're not going to like my answer. <laughs> Nobody really knows yet. So I just got back from doing a Camino, a walk across northern Spain with some other leaders on a journey and multiple levels of the word. And it was heartbreaking because the people were amazing hospitality, credible, loving. Good Samaritans would just pick people, people from our group up and drive them where they needed to go. I mean, um, just amazing. I felt so connected to the Basque people, but the cathedrals are museums. And the parish miss, mission churches out and through the, the, the mountains and the valleys that we were hiking through, all of them are boarded up with graffiti, broken windows. But the, the bells still call people to mass. They're on like an auto timer or something. And nobody's going. Not only is nobody going, nobody even, it's like they don't even see it. It used to be the center of the common life was the parish church. And now... It's the pub and tapas bar across the street. People walk by the churches without even recognizing it. I watched it happen. 
in every single place that we went to. So you don't have to be a prophet or a sociologist to know that's exactly what's happening here as well. So missionaries have been going to Europe for the last hundred years and they still haven't cracked it. I don't care what they say at their missionary dinners when they come back to justify their paychecks. Nobody's cracked it other than long-term, loving, incarnational presence, usually around felt need, which a lot of that's refugee ministry, poor ministry, uh, rehab, those kinds of things. And we know even here in the States that the harvest is on the margins. The problem is, is that white, wealthy, and everybody in this room is wealthy, well-educated Americans don't want to do that stuff. We want to pay other people to do it and feel good about it ourselves. But unless we're willing to go to the hard places, what has happened in Europe is a precursor of what's happening, what will happen and is happening now. So do Mike and Aaron and I know how to do it? No, we don't, man. We're blundering around trying to figure this thing out, listening to the voice of the Spirit. And I will tell you, the only place, and I travel with a lot of people, maybe you're picking that up on that, the only place I see a harvest right now is in the addiction recovery sector. That's the only place where people are coming to Christ in substantial numbers. And the reason for it is that they're desperate and they know they're going to die unless they get some help. And nobody else in the places that we're ministering is desperate and realizes they're going to die unless they get some help. So I think we've got to, there's future innovators and entrepreneurs in here, kingdom ambassadors, missionary movemental leaders, and we need one another to tell these stories like Mike's been telling, that Aaron's been telling, to say, where are you seeing God work? You know, not that it'll be transferable principles or magic bullets, because there's no such thing. You got to ex you to do the hard work of exegeting your community, what those needs are, and then address them. So just this week, while I've been here, talking to a whole lot of people that I know, something stuck out to me, and maybe this is, maybe this was for you today in your question. These people are not going to start a church. They're going to start a school in an impoverished area where kids need an education. And they're going to recruit some white, wealthy, well-educated benefactors because people will send their kids to a school where they can get a good education and have a chance for a future in ways and in a depth and to a degree that they're never coming to your church, no matter how missional or micro-churchy you are, what do the people need? And how can we bring resources to bear to meet the holistic desire of God to see people walk and flourish as human beings? He wants us to flourish as human beings. And that's why I love coming here to South Knox, because we've got white, wealthy, well-educated, fellows with beards, seeking to make a difference in the lives of people who've been abandoned to the margins. And that is where the harvest is. It's not in white, 
middle America with suburbs, yet that's where we target all of our ministry. And I won't go into the reasons why, but I think some of you know the answer to that already. I do think that our Bible colleges and seminaries have been training people to open up blockbuster videos. Been training. I did just say that. Training Christian leaders for a world that no longer exists. I do believe that. And so, you know, one of the, something that I think was incredibly symbolic is a friend of mine opened up a brewery, distillery, coffee house for the purpose of mission. And that's become his church. They've got a number of people that have come to faith there. They tithe into it. And so, you know, their tithes and offerings go to pay for Uber rides for drunk people, to pick up tabs for waitresses that got stiffed, to pay their rent for dishwashers that are coming out of homelessness, getting jobs, trying to cover their new apartment, right? And so the beauty of something like that and thinking of church as a movement of missionary disciple makers is that you've got this lady and her friends that are living off of food stamps that have collected supplies that go under the bridge multiple times a week to supply resources to homeless people that are living in an encampment under the bridge, right? Then you've got this guy with the brewery, but then you've got this lady who opened up a cosmetology school for the sake of mission. And 90% of the girls going to her cosmetology school are not Christians. And they actually busted a human trafficking ring because they traffic girls through hair and nails, right? So here's kind of how the web of the people of God as a movement can work. You get the guy under the bridge who says, you know what? I feel like I've found some hope and some faith from these people. I feel loved by them. I actually feel like maybe I could get off the street. And so then he connects with a cosmetology school that cleans him up, cuts his hair, makes him look good. We get him an outfit. He goes over and interviews with the brewery and gets a job as a dishwasher, and they cover his first three months' rent in his new apartment. This is the potential of the people of God working together for the movement of God across the city, thinking not in terms of how do we get these people to be responsible and show up to our church services, to instead how do we see the good news of the kingdom break in in our city. So I, I think it's there's some God is doing something really amazing. And I, and I think as Foy connects with people in another, in another world from us, because we don't have Sunday gatherings, we've got a once-a-month Friday night happy hour where all of our communities will come together and celebrate. We collect supplies for migrant workers and homeless people, and people share stories of what's happening in their various mission fields and Different musicians will play. Fletcher and the Flutes will play. And we've, you know, got this uh, Chilean band that's playing. 
and we eat food and hang out together once a month, and people see the, lar the larger network and movement that, that they're a part of. They'll come together for brunch, and we'll just encourage each other and share stories and you know do whatever we can to get behind supporting these people that are creating things. But I think part of what Foy's doing is is almost like like um, looking at existing church institution. And correct me if I'm wrong, wrong, but like a like a farm system of going who in here could potentially step out and live in the radical ways of Jesus that needs to, to be invited to take that next step of adventure. And so not that he's going to change the whole church or the whole institution, but there are people within it that are going, there has to be more. There has to be more. I want more. I want to figure out how to live the way that Jesus lived today. And Foy's able to pull some of them along, coach them, and release them to live radically for Jesus in the places where they live, work, and play. Um, I mean, what do you do with kids? So do we. Yeah, same. <laughs> same. My, you know, my kids are, you know, the, the cool thing is my kids have seen things that they never would have seen. Because I, I wasn't always doing this. I led a church that grew rapidly numerically, hired five staff in the process of a 1,500-seat building campaign, all that kind of stuff. Foy knew me back then. It was a dark place in my life. <laughs> but, but anyhow, um, I, look, I look at what my kids have experienced in our home. They've seen dozens of people come to faith like at our house, um, radically transformed. And they've also seen a ton of brokenness. I'll put it this way, right? We had a, a neighbor because we had somebody come. Some of you guys have heard the story of the girl who came to faith out of heroin addiction and had demon tattoos on her head and her tongue split like a snake and all that kind of stuff. But when she was coming into our house, she actually was in a wheelchair because she got an infection from a needle that paralyzed her from the waist down. And so she's in a wheelchair coming into my house, and my neighbor across the street made the statement like, um, when you bring people like that into your home, you bring them into our neighborhood. Don't you have somewhere where you can put them, right? And then she said, what am I going to tell my kids? Um, and I said the same thing we tell our kids, that if you do drugs, you might end up in a wheelchair like Tanya, <laughs> right? My, I said my kids are actually less likely to go down that road because they've seen the devastating effects of where that road can take someone because we have friends that are in our home that are talking about the fact that they've lost their job, they've lost their relationships, they've lost their kids, 
all that kind of stuff because of the choices they made. My kids want, want nothing to do with that. So there's something both, I don't know, people could say it's more dangerous. I actually feel like it's more dangerous to shelter them from the brokenness of the world. I think we need to be with them and keep them safe, but they also need to see the brokenness and how Jesus can redeem it and how sin actually isn't fun. It, it will kill you. Um, but look at what God does in people's lives. So they're with us. They're, they love it. I mean, if my son was here, he's 11, he'd say, I love, I love what we're doing. They love it. Yeah. I feel like this is a conversation we have pretty regularly. And uh, I think, and this is probably true of all of us, but, uh, and both of us are PKs, right? So we both grew up in, with religious backgrounds. And somewhere inside of me is the elder brother in the parable of the prodigal son story uh, who really gets off on performance. Um, and even in my best moments associates how my heavenly father feels about me with how good or how bad I'm doing in that particular season. And to realize like when I'm at my lowest, um, when there's no putting the, the pin in the shame grenade, it's not going back. <laughs> I'm just covered and in, in, I'm in my lowest moment that I'm still like have to be reminded and I'm still learning grace that in that moment that my heavenly father does not like avert his eyes um, because of where I'm at, but that he looks at me with fondness and true, true love and, and not because of how well I'm doing or how bad I'm doing. He just can't help himself. It's just who he is. It is grace that is relentless uh, and it's in his pursuit of us. So. That is what, that has been the most stretching and it's what I got to just keep on learning and relearning. Um, you know, I think, I think that God has revealed to me how, how un, unbelievably patient and gracious he is toward all of us. And all of our neighbors. Because I think a big eye-opener for me is um, how incredibly broken, imperfect, and hypocritical we all are. Like all of us. Um, I used to think of like immaturity and then growth and immaturity. But when I'm with a group of people, I'm going, I think everybody here is mature and immature in different ways. Right? There might be someone who struggles with sexual sin and another person that struggles with anger and another person that struggles with bitterness and another person that's not generous 
and another person that's not hospitable. Um, and so I, I feel like a part of this journey on mission, you can almost, if you're in a setting where you go to a, a religious teaching, a teaching about Jesus, which usually has to do with like change your moral behavior to like not sin or something, but we're not focused so much on living the radical, generous, hospitable, engaged in our neighborhood. I don't think it, let me put it this way. I think someone who knows an incredible amount of theology and attends a ridiculous amount of Bible studies, goes to church every Sunday and tithes, but they don't have their neighbor over for dinner, I don't think they're mature in hospitality. You get what I'm saying? But God is patient with them. The same way that he's patient with my friend Mark, who comes over every week, and he'll take food to other people's houses and bless them. And he's super encouraging, and he coaches multiple Little League teams. But man, like, he's got the worst dating habits in the world. And he's sleeping around with whoever, and he uses the F-bomb like every other word. But then he's calling me, and he's telling me, man, like the thing you said about Jesus, it inspired me to pick up like extra tacos and take them over to this guy's house. And I'm seeing this ma maturity in him that's missing from people that I, you know, know in the church world, but yet immaturity in other ways. And then I see both in other people. And so I just feel like there's patience from God and that he would use Solomon in his brokenness and sin and polygamy, that he would use David, that he would use Samson, that, you know, throughout history, God is using the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, which is all of us, which is hope for each and every one of us. So I, I find great comfort in that. Even when Paul says, you know, that um, the things I want to do, I don't do, and the things I don't want to do, I do, and he calls himself the chief of sinners. And then he talks about this thorn in the flesh, right? Where he's like, I prayed multiple times for that to be taken away, and it wasn't. Man, as a kid, I was told that that was like a physical ailment or something. But I don't know about you. When I have a physical ailment, what I ask for is, God, could you heal me? Right? But what he says in that is, your grace is sufficient, Right? What is grace? Unmerited favor. We're, we're given God's blessing. God is blessing us with, you know, all, all the blessings of the heavenly places in Christ given to us in spite of our brokenness and sin and imperfection that God's grace is poured out, right? So Paul, the chief of sinners, who does things that he doesn't want to do and doesn't do things that he does want to do, can't overcome whatever this thorn in the flesh is and yet God showers his grace. I think Paul truly was a chief of sinners that God was using. And so I, I, I find myself just becoming more and more as I look at the scriptures and I just get to know people and get honest with myself, realizing how patient and loving and gracious God is because the only prayer that he accepts is be merciful to me, a sinner. 
not, God, look at my report card. I did a good job this week. And so I feel like we need to be the chief confessors when we come together. We come around the table, not with our impressiveness, but in our brokenness. And we are declared the righteousness of God in Jesus. And we're free. Um, that was a that was a long-winded answer. I'm sorry. <laughs> All right. Before we have another long-winded answer, uh, we've been sitting for a long time. Um, and so let's take, I'm not going to say 10 minutes because then it'll be 20 minutes. We're going to take an eight-minute break. I'm learning, Dave. Um, thank you for your questions, engagement. We'll take an eight-minute break, hit the restroom, grab a water, whatever you need to do, and then we'll do just the final, final portion before we break. <laughs>